Welcome to Her Deepest Ecologies, the podcast. I am your host, Jessica Gigo. We are at a turning point on this planet and in this country. In conversation with a wide range of artists, makers, creators, and caretakers, this podcast takes on two fundamental and interconnected questions. How do we care for ourselves and each other? How do we nurture the earth? Let's find out what these luminaries have to say. Hello, here we are at Season 1, Episode 2 of Her Deepest Ecologies. Thank you to everyone that listened to Episode 1. I appreciated your feedback and what you had to say, and I hope you'll continue to listen to these conversations that I was fortunate enough to have over the winter with um, some people that I really admire and who are doing some important work in the world. My guest on this episode is Kevin Kraft. He is a poet editor, teacher, father. He's also someone who gets out in the natural world quite a bit, and I appreciate seeing uh, the trips that he takes, the hikes and journeys he goes on out into the mountains. Um, He's currently a poet-in-residence for Olympic National Park for their Terminus project, which we will discuss later on in the interview. Uh, And he also just has a lot of great things to say about how and why we write about nature and why it's important. And um, I learned a lot from this conversation and I think you will too. So enjoy and here we go. The, the, the woods is where I go to sort of um, just hear, I think our inner lives are directly connected to the outer world via what we call nature, you know, like that when I hear birdsong walking on a trail and I begin to pick out where they are and and which species are calling um, from which locations, I feel a kind of, you know, human desire to... um, control and shape and 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 be productive melt away and i'm just sort of there suspended in an auditory landscape um that feels um balanced it feels full it doesn't feel like it needs my presence nor does it feel like it excludes my presence that there's a kind of equilibrium between the inner life and the outer life I think poets are always kind of seeking that dialogue between the outer world and the inner world. Um, those are the polarities which draw us one way, you know, and the tensions which emerge in our work. Um, many poets, uh, almost all poets I have seen, deal with it in some fashion. And um, for me, the terms of the outer world that resonate most are often drawn from, you know, time in the mountains, in the woods, etc. Well, I- 
And that brings up a question for me. So you're, I mean, I know you as a poet mm-hmm. and as a former editor of mm-hmm. Poetry Northwest and mm-hmm. now an editor of Northwest Editions. Right. And you're yeah. also a teacher and a father. Right. Um, and you spend a lot of time in the outdoors. But yeah. how does the wilderness show up in your poetry? Or do you consider yourself an environmental writer? Or what's your relationship with, yeah. I guess, eco-poetics? That's a great question. Um, I don't think that I I resist names and labels of that sort. I always have been a little bit shy of that. I'm kind of a meandering kind of writer, and I try this avenue, and I try that avenue, and I've spent a lot of time abroad, and I write about you know history and the classical world, and as much as I write about you know, the Pacific Northwest and or, you know, the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. But fundamentally, whether you call it eco-poetics or not, yes, I am profoundly influenced by or driven toward um, the natural world, what we call the natural world. I, uh, In my writing, um, I think what I am trying to do is hear it experience it, taste it, see it more closely um, and strip away any preconceptions, uh, any human agenda, any industrial preconceptions and see the world for what it is, what it was almost before human beings (laughs) arrived and meddled in every aspect of it. And I'm speaking generally and broadly here. And, uh, of course, that's an impossible circumstance in most respects. Um, but I've, for me, the, the goal is, I guess, a kind of humility. Um, of course, I'm very happy to be alive in the world and I'm a human being and I've meddled enough in the world and, and certainly done my share of damage, no doubt. Um, um, but uh, – I just feel like a certain amount of outrage. When I feel outrage, it's when people take the earth, the land, the resources thereof, or even you know, just to use the word resources, totally for granted, as if it's like some free for all, some grab bag of endless you know personal wealth, and without realizing that we're all in it and all connected to it, and. And, you know, what one person takes, another person loses or another creature loses or a forest loses, a forest being a kind of sentient being as we've become more aware in recent years through the work of, you know, Richard Powers and other um, uh, scientists he highlights in his fiction. Um, I I feel like... In that sense, I mean, it sort of depends on how you define nature. For me, I look at particle physics as being nature. You know, I think of, you know, distant quasars as nature. I think of solar flares as nature. Um, It's all nature. Uh, And uh, so what I'm looking for is my proper place within the nexus, if you will. And I think... Our proper place is small and and we ought to l- learn from and, and and live in accordance with um, our animal instinct a little bit more than we do and accept that we are, you know, 
though we are a successful, uh, all too successful species, we are still one of just many, many thousands of species. And, and to lose that biodiversity, our brethren, as it were, would be a horrible, horrible development uh, on this planet, all for greed and egotism. Those, those are the, I mean, those are the two paths, right? I mean, it's like uh, there's uh, greed and egotism drive so much of the rapaciousness that harms the environment. Um, for me, I think the work of the artist is about re- trying to restore the balance of humility vis-a-vis the natural world, trying to, re- to remind people that we are not the be-all, end-all, and to amplify um, the voices that you hear when you're out in the woods, out in the world. Um, lots of people do that from a social justice angle um, to amplify unrepresented voices, marginalized voices, over, overlooked voices. I consider the social justice mission of poetry to include the non-human world, mm-hmm. uh, which also – whose voices are also unrepresented, underrepresented, un, uh, and, and need to be constantly amplified and brought forward to us, more so than ever, I think, yeah. you know, as we move further and further into this – techno, you know, dystopian, dystopia that we have invented for ourselves. Um, you know, fewer and fewer people live like you, Jess, on the land and of the land uh, and um, uh, don't know where their food comes from, right? Uh, don't have that um, kind of nourishing, continual contact uh, with the natural world that instills respect for that natural world. Um, I think that's the ultimate feedback loop I'm after. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I also have a new basket of poems about going to Costco because I really <laughs> struggle with it. <laughs> I, <bet. laughs> yeah, I live in the world too, <laughs> in many parts of the world. But that, I'd love to just uh, talk the a little bit. ecosystem of abundance, Exactly. Costco. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would love to talk about the, the recent residency that you mm-hmm. did at Olympic National Park. Yeah. Um, I have a couple questions. And is that, that's called Terminus? Terminus, yes. Okay. It's and actually have, ongoing, but yes. It's ongoing. And yeah. so y- are you in, how long are you in that residency? It's a, a year-long program with several points of contact. Um, so there are a number of artists of m- many disciplines have been invited. I'm actually not sure of the full number. I think it's upwards of two dozen, maybe nearly 40 different uh Writers, painters, sound recording artists. Um, uh, what else have I seen? Um, uh, I guess that's the majority of them uh, anyway. Um, and photographers. That's the other one I was looking for, the other word I was looking for. Um, and they have been invited over the course by the park over the course of the year to interact with the park. It's really an interesting model for the National Park Residency. As you probably know, many of our national parks have some form of artist residency program. Some of them are just traditional residencies. Here's a cabin. Come work for six weeks. Share your work with the public. Some of them are highly sought after, like Grand Canyon or Denali or what have you. I think uh, Olympic National Park is trying something new and, and befitting of the the nature of that park, which 
has many points of entry, um, doesn't have one primary entrance uh, and one primary gate, but has many different ways in and and preserves many different kinds of landscape. Um, and so we uh, were invited um, to make a proposal, and then they selected from how many of our applicants um, a larger number than usual of artists because they would spread the work out over a year. Hmm. And there's two components. One is sort of design your own interaction with the park. That was easy for me. I go to Olympic National Park on a regular basis. Um, I uh, love the backpack. Uh, I'll disappear into the backcountry there for four, five, six days at a time. And... Um, and I know various little shelters that exist in the backcountry there or, you know, failing that, great place to set up a tent and uh, spend a few days um, just kind of being in the, the uh, in the wilderness out there. And um, so that component I did this summer, and I think many of uh, my fellow artists also did. Um, then there is um, the working on the material. So our goal was to – we reach assigned a glacier. Mm. And our goal was to sort of examine what's happening to that glacier and its attendant ecosystem as a result of its retraction, you know, where it is now. Um, my glacier was the Cameron Glacier, which is in the northeast corner of the park and, and is a primary source for the Dungeness River. Um, and uh, a family that lives in Squim. So it was a natural area for me to want to explore in further depth. Um, but all of the artists have been spread out all over the place, uh, each side a different glacier. Um, once we had kind of gone on, done the field work of sort of, you know, being in the environment, getting close to our glaciers as we could, uh, examining the, you know, the downstream effects, um, uh, and, you know, noting, you know, various uh, inhabitants or lack thereof of the river valleys. Um, then we get time to, you know, write or produce the painting or photography or what have you. Um, so I'm still working on my particular project. I have some drafts. I'm pulling it together. The final uh, outcome is there's next summer there will be a a full-on week-long resident for our various artists at one of the um, service centers they have out near Forks. Uh, and it'll be a week-long uh, gathering of the various artists who participated. Um, we'll be sharing our work, presenting it to the public, doing little pop-up shows at other various locations within the park um, to share that work and call attention to the glaciers and their state. That is the primary goal. Um, so those are the sort of three phases, you know, end, beginning point, end point, and a sort of journey in between of this particular residency. I think it's really neatly uh, designed and really happy to be a part of it. Yeah, that's definitely, glaciers are definitely one of the entities that don't have a voice. Yes. Um, but I, what I found interesting about this project too is that there's a bit of, I don't want to say hopelessness, but yeah. I mean, one of the aims is to memorialize the glaciers, uh -huh. yeah. somewhat accepting that they're, they're, going. they're going away. Yes. How does, that, how does that feel or how has that <sighs> come up for you in this process? It's hard. It's really hard. I mean, 
I feel when I think about it and when I see the results, I've been hiking in Olympic National Park for almost 30 years now. And I mean, not, I've talked with people who've go back much further than that, Tim McNulty, uh, um, other people who live in that corner of the world. And, and, you know, I mean, you just have to look at the old photographs. You can see the changes, you know, quite visibly. And it, I, I take it personally. I feel it personally, you know, like I feel profound sense of loss as if a relative is dying or has died. Um, at the same time, going back to what I said earlier, we have to deal with the world we live in. And um, so there is a certain matter of factness about it. Um, Olympic National Park is not as far gone as some places in the world. So sort of as part of my research, I made a trip to Glacier National Park uh, in Montana um, later in the summer. Um, and just for comparison's sake, you know, I mean, obviously the park named Glacier is famous for this, for, for that uh, kind of landscape and ecosystem. And, uh, well, you know, they have lost a significant number. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but they have something like, you know, in the mid-1800s, 150, 170 glaciers named, and now they're down to 30 hmm. or something like that. And those are shrinking rapidly. And so it's even more visible in... Glacier National Park. Um, I also just got back from Iceland. I, I sort of did this hop, skip, and jump <laughs> across the northern hemisphere, and I wanted to see what their glaciers were doing there, ice caps, in fact. Um, Iceland is a very interesting case for a country called Iceland. There isn't as much ice as you might think, mm. you know, not compared to Greenland, where <laughs> there isn't as much green as you might think. It should really change names, perhaps. But yeah. uh, but no, there are these very beautiful um, uh, ice caps, profoundly large glaciers uh, in various parts of Iceland. And um, most of them are national parks. Uh, and uh, But Iceland is very forthright about here's where we are now. I mean, you go to a national park and there's a display at the visitor center that says, here's where the glacier was. Here's where it will be in 2030, 2040, 2050 at two degrees of warming, at four degrees of warming, you know, at the various scenarios. So they are kind of mapping out, preparing mm -hmm. for a future where their glaciers are dialed back um, uh, dramatically as well. Um, and that's not even talking about the most important ones, the ice shelves and the, you know, the Arctic and Antarctic uh, that are going to lead to sea level rise. Um, so you have these simultaneous catastrophes. On the one hand, the sea level rising, and on the other, the river river valleys sort of drying up, you know, because they're losing their source of perpetual water, the headwater, the glacier headwaters, um, and it's a very strange. Um, new reality to deal with. Um, we're not, we don't, you know, everybody's sort of trying to figure it out on the fly, right? You know, what does it amount to? What is it going to be? Um, I, I, to circle back to what you asked earlier, you know, how does it, what does it feel like facing this and, and the idea of elegizing or accepting? It doesn't feel defeatist to acknowledge reality 
it feels mm, brave in a way, or at least, you know, clear-sighted and um, uh, necessary, unfortunately, because there are still large numbers of people for whom this reality just doesn't connect, you know, Um, and who don't want to make adjustments to their behavior to mitigate and or reverse these effects that are accelerating. So in my small way, I'm trying to do my part to at least speak for what's happening on the ground and to convey in a more general way what scientists are saying in a more, you know, technical sort of way, um, just to make that emotional connection uh, for people. I think that's the role of the artists Mm -hmm. in a sense, to make those emotional connections, to turn raw data into, you know, what you feel, what you experience, how you make decisions every day. Yeah, I do think that poets specifically can almost be important translators Mm -hmm. because there is already such a huge body of Mm -hmm. science and research on what's going wrong and Mm -hmm. what what do we do about that. Right. Um, And And a lot of... Depression and morosity and cynicism about it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a great deal. There's a mental health crisis among young people right now. There are a variety of reasons for that, but I think one of the great reasons is this great catastrophe which awaits younger generations more than it awaits older generations who will not live to see the worst effects. Uh, and at the same time, you know, the Greta Thunbergs of the world see an older population that seems unwilling to budge, to move, to deal with the world as it is, but live instead inside ideological fantasies of, a, of how they think the world should be. Uh, and um, that mu- that's just profoundly frustrating. I feel it. I'm 55. I won't live to see the worst of the worst, although, you know, obviously things are happening right now. But I see it, my daughter and and I just know that people are – it's affecting their mental health. And so another thing the artist does is just say, look, well, here is a way of dealing with grief uh, that is not overwhelming, that does not drag you down into the morass, that allows you to acknowledge, to process – to accept, to move forward, uh, to deal with the world as it is, and hopefully, you know, at least to push back or be part of the forces of people pushing back. We'll get there eventually, you know. Will it be too late or will, you know, we be able to reverse some of the damage? That's the great unknown. Yeah. Well, I, you mentioned Iceland, and I know that there was a, a fairly well-documented funeral for a, um, a glacier that had completely disappeared there. And I think I'm just reading some of the uh, description here from Olympic National Park. The project that you're part of is called The Terminus. Yes. And they describe it as, The Terminus is an artistic elegy, a river you could skate away on, a love poem to a changing world. Yes. So I'm curious... You know, you never know what's going to come up when you set out to write right. poems about a specific place right. or within a specific time period even. What is your new work 
what yeah. what is sort of the tone of your new work, or, or how do you, how can you how do you describe the work you're generating through this residency? Yeah, that's, um, it, you can't know, and you can't force your. The, the, the trick is not to force a kind of, you know ideological vision on what you're encountering. You have to be open and receptive to what you are seeing and feeling in the environment uh, and not impose your agenda on it, right? Uh, I'm an eco-warrior of sorts, you know, but I don't want to write a a poem that sounds like Kevin Kraft saying, preaching to the world, right? I want to be a a conduit, a cipher, so I start by listening and paying attention into the land itself. Terminus also refers to a terminal moraine. And the moraine, of course, is the signature that a glacier leaves on the landscape, um, both as it advances and retracts. Uh, and so you can read the extent of the last glacial, you know, ice, you know, ice age, you know, the the extent of glaciation in the various landscapes around the Puget Sound. Even the Puget Sound itself is a glacial trough. Um, and so we live with that signature of the vanishing glacier all around us. So the Drumlin Hills of Seattle, the north-south orientation of those hills carved by glaciers, Lake Washington, etc. cetera. Um, so we live inside that vanishing, uh, and I try to keep that in mind, um, that I, what I'm paying attention to is the signature that the, the geological processes leave behind them, and just trying to, like, notice that, respect it, say it for what it is. Um, as it happens, I think it corresponds to, you know, a, a lot of our own experience as human beings. You know, what is it to live a life, it's to deal with constant change, it's to accept, you know, terminal loss, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, you know, um, our lives are constantly vanishing before our very eyes. Um, so I, I set those things side by side and I I try to let the glacier be the glacier in its vanishing and let my life be its life in its vanishing and let those things sort of coexist in a kind of dialogue with each other. That's what I try to do. Um, I don't know if it, you know, more or less successful, you know, any poem can go this way or that way. You, you can't quite force it the way you want. You can dream about what you're trying to do. And then the language has a stubborn way of, you know, taking over and making you do this, that, or the other thing, you know, yeah. if you're listening carefully. But that's part of the process, too. That's how a river forms, right? The river follows the path of least resistance down the hill and changes course according to, you know, the conditions it finds along the way. And... um so I, I, I find guidance uh, as well in the natural world for the shapes or the forms that my writing takes. I sometimes deal in traditional forms, but mostly not. Mm-hmm. And I let the landscape sort of be my template, mm-hmm. my formal structure, the yeah. backbone of what I'm writing. Yeah. I'm just curious, like in a, a project where you are tasked with you know, you have some limitations in the sense that you're writing about, you have a specific glacier that's been assigned to you. Yeah. Um, like, do you find that personal story and narrative uh, is intermixing with just observations of that glacier and that space? And is yeah. that working in those poems? It is because 
as I said before, um, I asked for and was assigned a glacier that I was semi-familiar with because um, I have family uh, that lives in Squim, and I know that corner of the park probably the best. And um, so I have a history of having lived there and been there and explored there. And so echoes of those previous voyages, you know, whether they're personal trips, mine, or whether it's, you know, historical voyages, you know, um, Native American trade routes, um, gathering points, um, you know, the press expedition, what have you, various journeys through the Olympics. They're all there. They've all left a mark on the land somehow. Uh, And so, yes, I let myself be open to all of that. I think in a practical way, what I need as a writer to start is some kind of instigating detail. I guess what Richard Hugo calls the triggering town, right? Some kind of little um, spark that says, this is where you begin uh, in the face of overwhelm, you know, something so large as a glacier, you know. The temptation is to write grandiosely about, you know, beautiful landscapes and the sublime and and try to approach it head on that way. But I that never works very well for me. Um, <clears throat> in my particular case, um, I think my, the trigger that really got me going was I found uh, up the Grey Wolf River, which is one of the tributaries of the Dungeness, um, before I got to my first camp um, in July uh, when I began this project, the backcountry portion of the project, I saw a very fat, healthy western toad <laughs> right off the trail, not far from the river, uh, which was in full spade. It was, you know, coursing with fresh snow melt. It looked in good shape. Uh, this was third week of July. Um, we had that wet spring, as you recall, and a late snow melt uh, this year before things just kind of dried up really fast. But, you know, in July, there was still that sense of, wow, this is how things are functioning how they should be. And um, I, I saw this Often for me, it's a bird. Like I said earlier, I hear a yeah. bird and I, I respond to, to bird call. What poet doesn't, right? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the magnificence of the creature that flies through the air and sings the song, that's the embodiment of poetry. Um, but for me this time, there was the fat western toad and, and they're sort of semi-rare. I mean, in fact, when you see one, you're meant to report them mm. in their location in the Washington Wildlife um, Fish and Wildlife Department ha- collects that data. Okay. So, made a note of it where it was, conditions, etc. Did you know? Eventually, dial that in when I got back to civilization and internet access. But I figured that that fat western toad was there because the river was doing its job, the forest was doing its job. The, the mossy substrate of the soil was doing its job, and um, therefore the glaciers were also still doing their job. And I saw a direct connection between those two things. And so that was sort of my gateway into this particular um, uh, sequence that I'm working on. 
Um, and I think if I were to describe, I don't, I'm not prepared to read from it right now because it's still yeah. very much in proto draft form and still working itself out. And, um, but basically it sort of goes up the mountain, it comes back down, you know, that's my basic structure that I'm following yeah. and, um, you know, goes up as a human pilgrim and comes down as glacier snow melt ends up at the Dungeness spit, mm-hmm. you know? Where the river, you know, lets its silt accumulate into, you know, into the Salish Sea. Yeah. So I'm looking – I'm trying to just try to be – I'm trying to look to probe all the connections and, and sketch them out and also be in the scene but not an oppressive presence in the scene but just a participant as, as someone who's a respectful part of that ecosystem traveling through it. Yeah. That's great. And I mean, it sounds like you have a long history of getting out in the wild, getting out and exploring places and habitats here. It goes back to my boyhood, yeah. Yeah, but not necessarily even with the intention of writing about it. No, not just at all. Being experiencing it. Do you have a poem you'd like to share that is one of your, maybe a more direct reflection of one of those experiences? Sure, I do. And not, I'm not asking for new work either. <laughs> I actually am going to read you some. Oh, okay. Work. You're welcome to. Oh, that's exciting. But I didn't want to put you on the spot. Yeah. No. I mean, I could go back into The Vagrants and Accidentals, my last book, um, because there's certainly some of that there. But what poets are always most interested in and what they're working on next, yeah, right? That's great. And what's coming up. I brought next. Uh, For the Climber. That was one I read a long time ago, which yeah. is a lovely poem. That, um, that's one I, that sort of traces that same sort of path of going up the mountain and coming back down. And that one's on the Poetry Foundation site that's sort of widely available. I guess that's one of my most successful poems in terms of like the number amount of feedback I've gotten mm. from that out in the world. And yeah. ended up. And this poem is called Basin and Range. No place we've lived but the lake dries out just as the swan dive begins. No one to raise his hand when the teacher calls roll, sixth-grade heart pumping donated plasma. One day he's there. The next we're reading about leukemia and what are the chances a boy outlives his broken blood. Poor Mike. That's what we said in the quiet corners of recess at the stone-kicking edge of the field. Bloodline, lifeline, a hand held out, someone to read it. What have we missed? Once, after school, I took a screwdriver to my thumb, drawing just enough red to press into my best friend's likewise self-inflicted wound, our two thumbs stuck together, fists interlocked in brotherhood forever. It's what we heard you did if you wanted to hew close to this world long enough to look back, wondering which absence still holds you in its aching limbs. The lake dries out, taking with it poison carp, jump rope, whoever walked on water. When I first call the agency to glean what I can about my own sealed medical history, the woman on the landline notes with clinical enthusiasm, an uncle has four kidneys. That's one way to cobble a secret society, stories to line our pockets, a surfeit of risk and ward. But no names. A biography, an outline only. Hole in the ground, thermodynamics, yesterday's kestrel hovering 
hovering over an inland sea. Before Maro, there was Mar, the tough ring eroded of basalt, snarling water in a gusher of steam. Today I drive a dusty sedan through basin and range toward its planned obsolescence. Fort Rock, Summer Lake. Lonesome lives inside us like an island we can swim to, dreaming. Terminal, the playa, meaning no outlet but sinking or evaporation. Water stitching salt to silt like a sworn pact or residue of alien memory. Blood in another boy's vein. Hmm. There's a little bit of family history in there. I, I didn't mention that up front, but as an adopted person, I spent most of my life not really knowing where I came from. And yeah. I was raised by one family, but I had this mysterious other family that had produced me. And and so I kind of lived with this kind of mystery of origins. Uh, many adoptive people have that sense mm-hmm. and couldn't do much about it until recently. And recently have gone on a journey of discovering where I came from. And, and so some of that sort of gets stitched in there into the story. But, you know, for, you know, when you're in, for me, the adoption was a, not a problem. It, it kind of gave me a liberty to imagine I was from anywhere, <laughs> you know, like any place was my place. Any story was my story in a sense, you know. <laughs> well, that I want to. Um, I really appreciate your time, and I yeah. think it a lot of it today too. So oh, this has I, been fun. It's really great talking to you. But I kind of want to come back to these two sort of ar- overarching questions yeah. that I'm grappling with, and yeah. that I'm, you know, the one of the the focus of this podcast is to yeah. talk to people doing lots of different work in the world and seeing how they respond to these questions. So. Um, they are, how do we care for ourselves and each other? Hmm. How do we nurture the earth? And I know you've been, you know, your father, you've also been, you know, I think as an editor, you're a caretaker of many people's poems and mm-hmm. yeah. in- interiority in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and I think you've also, I don't know if you've ever worked for the Park Service or not, but you've obviously by being out in the world, I think paying attention to what's happening in the wilderness is mm-hmm. a, as a way of caretaking. So. Yeah. I'm just curious what comes up for you with those questions. Um, These are profound questions, Justin. uh, You gave them to me in advance, and I've been thinking about them for weeks, and and, um, sometimes I feel stumped by by it because it is – they are the core questions. But I think what I've finally circled back to um, are are two things. Um, One, and we already talked a, a little bit about it. I feel like mindfulness, you know, some form of mindfulness practice is an essential part of how we care for ourselves and prepare ourselves to care for others. Because if we are caught up in the anxieties and stresses and catastrophes all around us and then we become part of that noise, we are helpful to nobody, least of all ourselves. So for me, that mindfulness takes various forms, you know, long backpacking trips, just, you know, a daily biking rhythm around the city. I love to ride my bike around Seattle and various trails, which keep getting more and more um, built out. Um, Wonderful city for biking. 
I'm walking along the Puget Sound with my daughter and, you know, tide pooling and doing all those things. We have so much fun doing that. And I just see how her disposition changes. She's an anxious child. She wouldn't mind me saying that. (laughs) And um, self-confessed anxious child. And um, But when we get out on the beach, uh, this childish joy, this... Uh, and I don't mean childish in the diminishing way. I mean it in the joyful way and the um, the nourishing way comes out of her. And she's just fascinated with the creatures and looking for them and examining them and trying to rescue the ones that are stranded and all of that. And that's what I mean by mindfulness, that sort of we are in this moment here now. Nothing else matters. And listen to the full resonant texture of where you are. And that's a centering, reaffirming, life-affirming kind of practice. I think that it's fully necessary for me, and, and, and people find it in various ways, you know, through dance or yoga or meditation, um, farming. I'm sure you kind of feel that way when, <laughs> a lot you, get of repetition, it, yeah. when you get in a rhythm, right? Yeah. Um, but that brings me to my, my second point, and I mean – I think what you're doing is is absolutely one of the the ways. The emblem of it for me is we have a, a wonderful little garden in our backyard. My wife takes good care of, and we're still getting tomatoes off of trying to get them in hurriedly, you know, as the as it gets colder and colder. But our late October season brought them brought a fresh bushel flourishing. Um. But our garden is is miniature. It's it's sort of a, a token of what could be. Two people I I love and respect and admire basically live out of their gardens. One is my aunt who lives in Squim, who has a nice piece of property in the foothills and has a big, beautiful garden. And she's all every time we go out there, we're getting some bushel of vegetables that she can't consume herself. Uh, nice sunbelt there for yeah, growing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she feeds her neighbors and supplies them too. Um, and she could be, you know, she could have a booth at a farmer's market, but she's just the kind of person who does it for pleasure and, and gives the surplus away. She's 85 and she doesn't have – her needs aren't great, but but she's committed to her land and she shares the bounty of it with others. Um, another friend I visited along – an old friend um, in France this summer. Um, her name is uh, Patricia Thury and she lives in Pau in the southwest corner of France. And uh, she has what we would call a pea patch. You know, they call a community garden. A big, you know, maybe like acre. Nah, maybe that's maybe it's maybe half acre. It's a lot. Uh, and um, basically, she does not have to buy vegetables. You know, she it's for her the same thing where it's self-sustaining. It's, they eat what they get from their garden. They primarily live out of their garden. They're not complete vegetarians. They do um, buy meat uh, occasionally, but they don't they, – they minimize it. They're deliberately lowering their carbon footprint mm-hmm. uh, and doing it in not an ostentatious sort of way but in a deliberate, focused sort of way. I think in Europe it's interesting that it connects with an older way of living. You know, I mean there was no carbon footprint in – medieval times, right? They would, I guess what the cows, you know, belched out, whatever, yeah. you know, but uh, um, 
it, it sort of goes back to a different way of life that is in their cultural DNA, if you will. Uh, and it was interesting for me to see that in a European context. Um, and so, you know, literally nourishing themselves and the people around them through a deliberate focus kind of practice. The key component in both of those things I said is that you can't do it all. And you have to do what you can do for yourself and your community, your friends, your familiars, however you know generous you can make that circle. Uh, and But you cannot feel responsible for solving everything that needs to be solved and then also letting the impossibility of that weigh you down and prevent you from doing the small things that you can do. Mm-hmm. I think that that, that that kind of daily practice in the garden or walking in the woods keeps you connected to the present uh, and to the things that are within your capacity uh, and allows you to make some kind of progress towards restoring an, um, a natural equilibrium. Thank you for listening to Her Deepest Ecologies, the podcast. For more information on our guests, please visit the Substack page for photos, complete bios, links mentioned in our conversation, and more. These interviews were recorded at Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle, Washington. Thanks to sound engineer Ayesha for all of her help. Episodes were edited at my farm in the Skagit Valley, Harmony Fields.